The title of the podcast is Lonely Hearts because in the time of pandemic, everybody's lonely. <laughs> Even those who live in their, with their families. And, and their joas. And their joas. Jo- <laughs> there, there was even a circular I saw in, uh, circulated in London uh, where people were giving, the government was giving advice on how people should have their relationships in the time yeah. of lockdown. Oh, Nicole, did you did you follow that advice or did you read that? Must must inform the whole the Australian situation, like or what is the Australian? Only... What are the Australian you're... rules of, uh, shall we say, um, social intercourse? If you don't live with a person, you can hang out with a person. That was the rule. But I wanted to ask about. Well, first we could talk about. Can we please? You know, I I just want to say that I feel very lucky to have you guys. We're speaking across three different time zones. Yeah, you pulled it off, Sarge. I thought it was impossible to pull off something between these three time zones. Three time zones. With with some sacrifice on your part. So thank you very much. Yeah, unless you're not sure now. I don't know. Lelo, it's it's, it's 8 a.m. where you are. Um, I I would think that entails some sacrifice. But for the record, who are you and where are you? Um, I'm Lelo Claudio. I'm an escort. I'm an escort con- contributor. No, actually, I, yeah, I am. I am that um, assistant professor at the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies at UC Berkeley, newly minted OFW. So I just moved here. <laughs> just moved here in January, and I really am an official. I think both Nicole and I are officially OFWs, meaning we went through the horrendous process of becoming one. It's quite difficult. But don't you think that's a sort of that is a measure, you know. I remember, you know, Blas Ople, you know. That is a measure imposed by the government to avoid all of the tragedies and all of the mishaps that happen to regular OFWs, right? The reason why I think it's so long is because they're they're making money out of you every step of the way. So my favorite story is like, you know, I had to go for a health check and they looked at my teeth and they said, Sir, kahiya naman kasi may coffee stains yung teeth mo. 800, sir, lilinisin namin. <laughs> <laughs> to, get your, to get your clearance. And I'm like, you know, my, I, have no cavi- I have no cavities. Huh? I mean, I, I have very good dental hygiene, except I, I drink a lot of black coffee. So I did have coffee stains. So I mean, thank Actually, you, PUE. Okay, thank you, PUE. Kailangan mo na mapableach ng ngipin. So if you die while you're working, the company has to repatriate your body. But then my employer was like, we're not going to put that in the contract. That's stupid. Like, we have a uniform contract here. Um, this is a state institution. So POA was like, okay, yeah. So just get that insurance yourself. And there are, like, insurance companies around the POA that provide that exact same, um, that, that exact benefit. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's an industry surrounding this clearance. 
you're around these people and they're all down 30,000 pesos and they've been commuting from whatever, from Pampanga, from Baguio, sure. because they get, they've gotten turned down five times. So they're down 30,000 bucks, but they're also down like another 50,000 bucks because they've been spending on commutes back and forth between Baguio and POEA. And they're all really, you know, they're all really suffering through this process. It's, it's horrendous. I mean, I want to ask the other overseas worker, so to speak, on our call right now. Uh, Nicole, who are you and where are you right now? Uh, well, I'm Nicole Corrado. I'm a sociologist. Uh, I work at the University of Canberra. So my day job requires me to spend all, all of my time, mostly in Australia. Uh, but right now I'm in the Northern Hemisphere in an undisclosed location. Like, are you really sort of keeping your location to yourself? Yeah, man. I mean, it's culture of oversharing. So I, I just want to keep it kind of. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, so I do. I'm an OFW. I'd like to think that you're a different kind of OFWs. And I want to go to this because I just recently read an article in The Atlantic about, you know, the overproduction of elites in America. I wonder if that applies to the Philippines where the overproduction of elites, meaning elite minds, not just elite money, leads to this or has led to this quote-unquote brain drain, okay? Which is, you know, a term straight from the 70s. It's a Marcos term, you know? It only stuck because it's a great alliteration and probably because it continues. And what can you say about that, about you guys? Yeah, I think I see your point, Naparam. We're in this very... I guess, weird category that we didn't have to leave the nation because we were desperate to get a job elsewhere. So I'm not going to make that equivalence between our experience compared to the experience, let's say, of a teacher in the Philippines who sure. shifted careers to be a caregiver in Hong Kong because of uh, material yeah. conditions. And that's um, not, so much, not so much an example anymore. It really is an actuality. I mean, people, that is the, yeah. it is a career path, in fact. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But I embrace the label of an OFW, I think, because there is that shared experience that Leloy mentioned of having to queue in POEA, of having to engage in the, the PIDOS seminar, the pre-departure yeah, orientation seminar, where we're all told not to um, basically flirt with our employers because we might get fired or beheaded. Yes, it, it, it's, it's a pre-departure orientation seminar. That's what it's called. But actually, it's also quite an interesting experience, I guess, as a social scientist, because I don't think we, we take for granted. It was emphasized in that seminar, at least for me. Like, for example, the teacher was telling us, when you get offered uh, food in the plane, you're allowed to take it. So, of course, mm -hmm. we take that for granted because we've traveled before, right? But for people who are traveling for the first time, that kind of is an important uh, emphasis and also um, differences in culture. But I like the term OFW. It gives this sense of solidarity. Uh, although I also recognize that for academics like myself who don't come from third world countries, they're not called uh, migrant workers. They're called expats, right? So there is immediately that hierarchy. Now, my British counterpart in Australia is not migrant. The person is an expat. So, Lelo, you're in North America. You're, you're in, you're, you consider yourself, you brought in the OFW, the, the idea that you're an OFW. And yes, you are. As an OFW who is, as Nicole said, you're on a slightly elevated level, not just in terms of, I'm not talking about financially or socially, but intellectually. And you can look at this from above. You can look at the idea of a nation. You can look at the idea of a nation whose primary export you know, is human beings and labor, right? 
and you you can look at the effect of that nation on its present and on its mm. future. We have had the OFWs for what maybe more than fifty years, if you count fruit pickers in the U.S. Yeah, more or, than fifty years, or if, if you, you count, count uh, Man- the Manila men of the nineteenth century, right? Or, or even Absolutely. or even if you count the Kapampangan warriors who were guarding the Manila. Acapulco ships, right, and battling pirates in the Caribbean, right? So actually, yeah. a more accurate representation of pirates of the Caribbean would have been Jack Sparrow going to war with Kapampangan warriors. However, recently, on my one of my recent, more recent trips back home, I overheard somebody saying, "Wag tayong pumila dyan sa OFW lane, di naman tayo OFW eh. mm. Mm. You know, and that's such a, it's a telling statement, right? I don't know. I didn't know how to react to it if I was gonna if I was gonna say ano ngayon right mm. or if I was gonna say mas malaki pang contribution yon sa economy natin kasi yeah. contribution mo yeah. no mm-hmm. na jumangket ka lang you know I have to admit Sarge that sometimes you there's something in the back of your mind that says okay this is a nakakahiya position to be in like you know when you're in the when you're in the airport and you're in an OFW people start talking to you like you're a kid so sir Kailangan dyan pipila. I've never, like, I used to travel as a tourist, obviously. And, you know, sure. they, they leave you be and they're you're they're kind of deferential to you because they know that you're in Japan as a tourist. But now it's like, oh, dito ka ha, dito ka pipila. Uh, pagkatapos nun, pupunta ka dun. And, and, then you, and, and then you say, opo. And then, and then I, I remember, you know, like in my OFW card, I, I said there that, you know, my job was assistant professor. Okay. I didn't think they knew, knew what that was, so they flipped it. They said professor assistant. So the assumption is like you're just assisting the professors, right? And I was like, you know, this sucks for my pride. But on the other hand, like, who cares? Like, as Nicole said, it's kind of like it's okay to be in solidarity with that position and to feel the kind of whatever stigmatization that this entire class feels and to start reclaiming that. Of course, I'm never going to be able to reclaim it completely because I am not a professor assistant. I really am an assistant professor. But it's it's a strange position to occupy, and it does make you think about those things, especially when you're traveling, because it's a complete. It was a completely new experience. But what what parang what annoyed you about the infantilizing approach to OFWs? Uh, it annoyed me because like it was being done to me, but it annoyed me on a on a broader level also because I don't think you should infantilize people that way in general. Right? Yeah. But I guess it's also just a para a fair assumption that not everyone in the airport knows yes. what's happening. Let's just yeah. assume that everyone yeah. has zero knowledge para din hindi nakakaya, just mm. to guide people. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, for us, it's kind of taken for granted that before you go to the immigration officials, you have, if official, you need to have all your documents ready. But for other people, they don't know that. So I think it's also, uh, yeah, quite infantilizing. But on the other hand, it's just making an assumption that People need information. Not everyone has mm-hmm. equal amount of information. But I mean, just going back to what Leloy said, or I think it was you, Sarge, who said it, na parang there's an ick feeling for some middle class people who are like, oh, hindi tayo OFW, huwag tayo pila dyan. I'm actually, yeah, I actually don't know where that's coming from because especially in our generation, we are part of the generation where everyone has an OFW family member. If not in our nuclear family, then at least in our extended families. They're probably doing different jobs in different countries, but the experience is so common. So I wonder where the ick is still coming from. Is it a visceral reaction or is it more like a self-deprecating joke? You know how people say sometimes like on a weekend, 
uh, you're taking a picture parang day off mo, right? Na parang there's this collective, national, um, I don't know, self-deprecating humor. Yeah, and it's becoming... Fact, culture. Like one time I came home from Saudi Arabia from a business trip and a business trip to Saudi Arabia is almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. A business visa to Saudi Arabia is almost unheard of. Even unheard of by the very immigration officers that grill you. No, it was for fun. It was great fun, wild fun. No, it was really work. <laughs> and I got there and, and it was very, very interesting and very warm because the Filipinos there just took care of us completely, you know? And all you could do was look up to them. You know, mm-hmm. I remember riding a, you ride one of these services, right? It's driven by a Filipino with a dozen other jobs, right? He has one official job, but he also does all these other jobs. And we passed by the square where people were being hanged. And he was saying, you know, that's where they hang people. And I said, aren't you scared to go to jail because you're like illegally driving this vehicle as a sort of shuttle driver for us? He said, oh, I've been to jail nine times. What? I'm like, okay. Dude, right. you know, it's a different world, right? And when we landed, you're right, Lele, just to point out the, the sexism when we landed and somebody shouting, Kantutan na! You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and what's amazing about this is that the pride there is unadulterated among the community. You know, it's a complete and total pride. And I walk in there and I'm feeling like I'm the outsider. I'm the mm. tourist, you know? And I'm invading their space, right? I'm speaking for them. Yeah. Yeah, and I've also, uh, and this, you know, the class that's, I think, least depicted and must be depicted more in literature is the kind of new middle class or slash lower middle class. Let's talk like, about for that. Example, middle class. For example, yeah. look, at, um, look at martial law novels. They're mm-hmm. always either told from the perspective of someone from UP, the elite schools, or at, sometimes Ateneo, right? But there's only one novel that I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, that depicts it from the perspective of students from the U-Belt. And it's not a very good novel at that. It's um, F. Chenil Jose's Mass. Now, where are we going with this? Why, why, do you want that? why do you want that cohort depicted in novels? I don't know. There, there's just a gap, right? And so if you look at the Katipunan, for example, they created a revolution, right? I think it comes from that kind of band of middle to lower middle class, new, new quasi-elite, right? Okay, let's talk about this new class, you know. Is this the... And I wanted to, ta- to ask you about this. Are we going to talk about this new class being sort of, you know, a, a keystone sort of component of the future, the, the huge gate we're going to enter to enter through to arrive at this golden future? Is there such a thing? Or is the OFW a signal of people auguring their own futures and saying, you know, one day I'm going to live out there and I'm going to take my family and bring them out there? Because... There used to be a trend of OFWs coming home. Um, now, in, I, in my recent trips, I've seen a lot of OFWs taking their families there, out there. Yeah. And I think aside from that, there's also parang a hierarchy of dream destinations for OFWs, right? So some studies would actually suggest that the first destination is the Middle East because it's easier to migrate there 
with the hope of using the Middle East as a springboard to go to Canada or Australia or some Anglo country where it's easier to adjust and where, where their kids can get an Anglo um, education. So yeah, I think that's that's one shift. Increasingly, it's becoming like that. It's also aspirational, uh, family reunification as an aspiration. So we, I can't remember which project I was working on, but we interviewed uh, working class young millennial men, uh, I think in Calabarzon region, sure. and we're training in an export processing zone with that in mind of reuniting the family by applying for a visa in Middle East to reunite with them in Canada. Mm. So I guess it's not so atypical to think of this as a pathway to life. It's not an aspiration. There's actually a concrete roadmap uh, already available. So I guess there are different modalities on how we can experience the future of being an OFW already. One is that family reunification. Of course, there's a lot of attempts by the government to bring back uh, OFWs back in the country. So I think for academics, there's the Balik Scientist program, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And they have all that. Yes. Beautiful benefits attached to it, including Asundo from the airport. So like, wow, yeah. <laughs> so very, very Pinoy. But that, that also means that maybe the term brain drain itself has sort of outdated itself. It's no longer just a brain drain, but sort of a heart drain, if you will. No, There's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit, there's a lot of disenchantment going on. That's what you're saying, basically. And I, I see it. I see it in the people around me. I see it in my friends. Mm. I'm going to connect it to what Nicole said earlier about your passport. You know, you chose to retain a Philippine passport. Is that still important when it comes to... Being Filipino, writing Filipino, does it change your concerns or does it make you feel like you have less right to talk about things mm-hmm. that are happening back home? Yeah, I think for me, you know, having having lived overseas, I think most of my adult life, it's really the one concrete connection I have with the motherland. So even the, the, the hassles associated to having a Filipino passport is really my connection to the That's homeland. a very romantic statement, huh? It is, but I mean, I'm also a sociologist, right? So the everyday experience, for example, of literally going to an, um, a bayad center to pay for a pag-ibig fund every year as part of my OFW contribution is part of a task. It's a hassle. Pupunta kang mega mall to pay, right? It's it's a bit of a hassle, but it also is a connection. Speaking of romantic, pag-ibig fund, no? it's so romantic too. No? That's so romantic too. Like... I know, but of course, this is me talking from my position of, of privilege again. But then this is, yeah, this is the only thing I think, aside from my parents and my sister, that connects me to, to the motherland. And it, I guess, the instrumental part of this is it gives me the edge in terms of my work because I still do a lot of work in the Philippines and to understand that everyday experience of what it means to queue in a bureaucratic office or to to, to engage in that bureaucratic transaction, I think is very much part of my everyday observations about what it means to be a citizen living overseas but still dealing with the motherland. Mm. So I think in that sense, in that professional development sense i think i think it still matters but also the trivia that my friends from the embassy told me is that if you ever get kidnapped overseas it's the filipino embassy that will move heaven and earth to get you no other embassies will do that for you sure but it's interesting also that uh, your views on politics give you a your privilege and your views in politics give you a special sort of ringside seat that isn't so you know soaked in blood when the uh, you know, when the cockfight happens, mm. right? And this gives you a special sort of point of view, gives you a special view. And I wanted to talk talk about this 
I wanted to talk about the future because sometimes when you look at the present, especially here in the country, it's very hard to see anything, especially now. And I would like to turn to you guys, you know, as sociologists, as academicians, as people interested in the idea of learning is I, I want to talk, ask you about how much you've learned us and how much you see in the future. So I think what worries me is that you asked the question about where is where are we headed? My worry is that there is no counter narrative or an alternative story that is emerging because it feels like the debate has been hostaged by this manufactured debate. And I think that is what worries me because we can't be stuck with these comfortable divisions and comfortable binaries or these immediate reactions that every time the president says something silly, we all react. I mean, we do because we have to reject what he says and what he does. But on the other hand, I feel like there cannot be alternatives if there are no emerging alternative stories. And this is why but this is why I'm so obsessed with, let's say, K-pop fans, right? No, like, that's he, great. I think this is great. Fan. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I have yeah, a for, for K-pop fans. My God, it's intense. Are you part of the army? No, but I'm getting... I mean, that's like soft power at work. So are you a BTS fan? Are you a K-pop fan? Yes. I'm not, but I have to learn this. I feel like it's part of my <laughs> it's part of my job description. Oh my god, that's so that's so nerdy. Might as well be a fan while you're at it, right? I still don't fully get it. But the reason why I, I find it interesting, it's because it's so hard to find a unifying narrative for a generation because they all listen to all, you know, to very different Spotify playlists. They don't watch the same television shows in the afternoon anymore. There's no cultural figure that unites this generation. So when something as big as BTS comes along, it's, it's fascinating for me because it gives a shared vocabulary to this generation. It has a parang community generating power that not a lot of celebrities or politicians did. Sure. So I think in terms of looking into the future, where where we should look at are less political sides of collective action and appreciate these non-political sides as avenues for creative ways of remaking politics. Mm. So the last example I'll make is, um, I just wrote a paper about this, or a micro section in a paper, about the Kathniel fans. I was super fascinated when they had this huge campaign of we block as one as a response to a trolling operation against these two young celebrities Ooh. who spoke up about the, um, the ABS-CBN shutdown. So basically, one of the Duterte trolls canceled them, basically. And then the fans just really organized and said, these are the trolls we have to block, we have to report, mute, and block them. And to me, this is a fleeting attempt to defend the digital public sphere, right? Like, let's clean up the digital public sphere without necessarily saying they're anti-Duterte. But they did that because they wanted to defend their fans. But inadvertently, the consequence is really cleaning up a polluted digital public sphere. So I'm more interested now with these kind of fleeting, micro-political, but nevertheless effective forms of collective action, which are easily dismissed as shallow, as um, will not change no, their landscape. No, I want to synthesize this and, and call it what it is. It's, it's about influencers. No, It's about influencers. <laughs> You know, let's call it that. But, but, you know, we might say that Hallyu, the Korean wave, Hallyu, mm -hmm. the wave of soft power that Korea created, you know, 
that brought about this huge following, whether it was it, it was about movies or music, you know, or, or TV, um, was funded by the Korean government. Yeah, they didn't put in a lot of money day. into that. That's what I was you know? yeah. And the difference here with what's happening today, as you mentioned, Nicole, and it is true, right? That this kind of social influence, you know, by individuals, by music is more precious. In other words, more difficult to arrive at because mm. anybody can listen to anything right now. Yeah. You yeah, can't exactly. have another sort of, it's very difficult to have a Beatlemania just mm-hmm. arising organically. No, state power is necessary. The developmental state is not dead. I think we had a bad experience with it, with Marcos and people are traumatized by that, that kind of big state in the economy because, and, you know, when developmental state doesn't work, as my mentor Caroline House says, it gets called um, crony capitalism. But when it does work, it's Japan, it's Korea. When it doesn't, when it doesn't, it's the Philippines. So we should we should try. And you know, there are steps towards that. Let's talk about that. I mean, I want to ask you in in pra- in practical terms, what do you mean when you say you're invested in the future? Well, the you know, some, well, people have been asking me to like save up money for a down payment on a house, etc. Here in the Bay Area, and they're like, you know, the Bay Area, the housing prices are going to be constant right there the, the it's never going to crash it's a good investment whatever like and there's this ideology of home ownership here in the united states which you know i re- makes me chafe and i'm like no because i if ever i were to invest in property it would be in the philippines because i want to retire in the philippines this is like the place where i want to spend a good chunk of my productive years but when you know when and i'm just an old foggy um writing left and right um because I just want to write. Are you, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? No, I just want to. I, I are you wanna talking do... to me or Shonil Jose? <laughs> well, well, no. Um, well, I'm not going to be racist. That's one thing. Uh, I just want to digress a little bit. And yes, you know, racism, sexism, they really need constant surveillance. You know, mm. and I, I have yeah. to say, like, one is not born, you know, a person who is not sexist. One becomes aware of what it is to be sexist or what it is to be racist and then avoids it. I think people fail to see that it's a learning experience all the time. You know, people Mm -hmm. fail to see that they need to learn it. You know, it's not like, oh, he's a racist or he's not, you know, I'm going to talk about cancel culture like very briefly, but that's so old to talk about cancel culture. I understand that. And and sort of cancel culture has a direct hand in our future. I want to just come back to the future because that's not literally you're canceling people from playing a part in the future. I'm talking about like, for example, people like Woody Allen, right? Mm. You cancel him and you, you can't look, go back to Annie Hall anymore and say what a great film that was. Mm. When, when we talk about cancel culture, yes, maybe 200 years from now you can go back. Just like right now, I can go back to Caesar and say he was such a great guy, even when he wasn't. But I also like to think that the future will not operate so much as it has been in the past. Thanks to the internet, thanks to digital, thanks to the way these generations absorb the interface and use the interface. It's a very different future for my son, very different future for your children. No, I, I, I just watched a lot of TV until I just watched a lot of TV until I was 12. And then I decided to start reading for some reason when I was around 12. Hey, but what led you to the academic life, guys? It's a hard I life. I have no other skill sets. No, honestly, no other skill sets. I'm not kidding because I mean, what are what are my skill sets? I can write, but I'm very slow. Um, academia is kind of hospitable for slower-ish writers. I can do research, but not as fast as other people. 
and I guess more selective than others. So we still have relative freedom to pursue topics that we think are valuable. That's not necessarily driven by commercial interest. I think that's such a that's such a privilege, mm-hmm. and the flexibility of our time, right? I think that that really that really matters. Yeah, ako, yeah, yeah. Same thing with me. Like, um, there there is one other thing I can do, which is probably right, but I could like um, I struggle, ah, but you can do. Yeah, I, can, <laughs> I struggle with fiction for one thing. I, I do like I like you know, as with any like writer, fiction is such an exalted form that you sometimes consider. Why don't I do it? But I I don't think I'm capable of doing it because I can't describe things. That's one of my struggles as a writer, like colors or the proper nouns of like certain things like you know like describe this room like i point at that thing like i don't know how, how I'd that's okay it. uh raymond carver was able to have a real career without really describing anything mm, that's true but like parang i just felt like I, I just felt i feel like i'm not the kind of person to be able to evoke a scene at most what i can do is evoke a conversation so I, maybe I, I, like uh, a script maybe maybe like i could possibly become a script writer or like um write plays but like the no- the novel form at least the novels that i like that kind of set scenes i'm not just not like it's it's impossible i'm i'm i would be unable to do it at most i can aspire to do like a super like a cheap version of uh, aaron sorkin because i like politics and like conversation that's that's i, I think thing. i think it's okay to want to be a cheap version of aaron sorkin <laughs> it's not bad speaking of which uh, i wonder if you guys saw the west wing special yeah, oh, I think. But I kind of found it like preaching to the choir a little bit. Of course, everything now is preaching <laughs> to the choir. No? And I want to go back that to, to, to that now because Nicole, you talked about that. Let's go back to that. No? Uh, Hallyu, the Korean wave K pop, it wasn't preaching to anybody at the start. It was just there, just pounding away, chipping yeah. away. But I guess there was something, I think what I like about it is also the agency of the fans. Like, BTS didn't command their fans to um, to to make fun of the Trump rally, right? To overbook tickets for the tr- for the Trump rally in yeah. collaboration with the TikTok teams. That is that is fan driven. So I think that I, I just have so much respect for self organizing ways of uh, renegotiating their relationship with their idols. So I think yeah, it, there's just so much elitism against teenage girls who are fans of these bands forgetting that there is legitimacy in the voices of teenage girls, right? So this is why I'm such a big defender of Taylor Swift, of of, um, TikTok, because these are the constituencies that are always disparaged because their politics is not serious enough, as if the only serious way of engaging in the public sphere is to, I don't know, be part of a political party, join a serious protest movement. I think that is so exclusionary. So if we are looking at the future, I think we need to have a more inclusive sense of what it means to be part of the public sphere. But fans now realize that they do have the power. They can drive influencers to become larger, into becoming larger influencers. They can change things. And the revolutionary, you know, is really a fan in disguise, you know, or an empowered fan, I would like to think, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that is a revolutionary, a fan who is willing yeah. to stand, so to speak. Right. <laughs> and given this sort of, and it's very democratic, very democratic, like somebody who doesn't know anything, who just has an internet connection can actually manage to be part of a movement. And this is like mm-hmm. one hope, one thing that gives me hope. It's one thing that gives me hope. 
about us, the Philippines, the Filipino future. We're great fans. We're great basketball fans. We're great fans of things that we're not even good at. We're great Miss Universe fans. But this is also easily uh, co-opted, can be easily co-opted. So one of our good friends, uh, Jonathan Ong, also mentioned that a lot of the disinformation tactics happening in politics now have roots in the disinformation tactics in beauty pageants on how fan constituencies are actually creating disinformation about other beauty that's pageant candidates. And now that's transported to uh, the disinformation machines. But I just wanted to address the issue of the future. There are so many vectors in Philippine politics, culture, and society that we can't see. Like, for example, you know, there was significant education reform under the Aquino administration, introducing courses that are more aligned with civics, for instance. And I've, you know, I've had I've had the chance to work on some of these courses, things like, you know, the contemporary world in college. Um, napapanahong mga issue for. I think it's junior high or senior high. So more civics-oriented or math in the modern world, even that is kind of like civics-oriented, right? So you have, you know, an entire generation, definitely your kid is going to go through it, will go through this new educational system that is a bit more open-minded. And I think you need to credit people like Sinch Bautista for, you know, designing this this new curriculum. And I think that's going to have an impact. So, you know, we've already been getting feedback from these courses about students saying like, you know, we, we didn't think, you know, you could think about the world this way, right? I just got an email this morning from someone who had taken one of these courses using a textbook that I'd help, that I'd help write. And they, they were saying that it's just a completely different way of looking at the world. So I wonder where that vector is going to take the Philippines. It's it's actually, we actually have a new educational system. People don't talk much about that, but we, but this K-12 thing experiment, this this experiment of changing the curriculum, I don't know where it's going to take us. It could take us somewhere quite nice. The the spread, of course, these fan cultures, of course, is another vector that we that we that we can't look at. Even let's say like the vectors of elite politics, the most reified elite politics. So that was your idea. Of, that was the most kind of reified elite male circle in the Philippines at that time. Nowadays, that those people would have brought, nowadays if you know they had been born today. They wouldn't go to Ateneo, they'd go to BSM, they'd go to ISM, right? And then they'd get shipped yeah, or, ship, or boarding school. And then they'd get shipped off to the East Coast. Nicole and I were in New York and we had a lot of really engaged Pinoys talking to us at NYU. And they had American accents and we said, oh, where do, uh, you know, where are you from? Where in the States are you from? And they're like, uh, we're from Manila. <laughs> we got that here, right? So, I, I, yeah. you know, I wonder, you know, that's a new elite, right? Because it wasn't as common before. What, wh- where is that, what, where's that vector going to go, for instance? I have no idea, but these are questions. To... But also the local elites, I think, is what the Duterte administration revealed, right? Like you have your Davao elites, and right. then there's now a conversation of the Davao Konyo and their own twangs. Mm. So I do a lot of work with the Philippine Sociological Society, for sure. example, and when we had our national conference online, the ongoing conversation when I entered the Zoom room was in Bisaya. Mm. So because and I and I felt like, oh, okay, this is how marginal Tagalog is in this national organization. And I loved it. I love being an outsider because it's a reminder that you have to learn Bisaya. Even from back, and I think post-COVID, this sort of multiple vector scenario, if I should say, mm. I should say, is really going to matter a lot economically, politically, certainly. And I kind of have that hope when I look at my kid and I see him discording it or YouTubing it instead of reading Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, you know, and he himself is an unseen vector that I can't evaluate at all, Mm -hmm. you know, 
that I wouldn't be able to evaluate at all because it's entered the wiring of his system already. Or, or, it's become his culture. Yeah. He's part of this yeah. culture. Yeah, there's you know? uh, like there's one line, of, there's one thing I'm never going to say again. And this is not to revisit the OPM is dead debates um, from before, like which is like a kind of stupid debate that I shouldn't, got, shouldn't have gotten into. But what I'm never going to say again is I'm never going to say that we're never going to have a peak Manila pop again or that we're never going to have a peak 90s OPM again. We're never going to have the same thing again, but something is something is going to happen. I don't know what it is. There's going to be a new peak at one point, and I don't know what that's going to be, but it's, it's definitely going to be exciting. Hmm. It may not like it may not have the same cross class appeal because it's impossible because nobody's going to consume the same thing ever again because of the balkanization of the internet. But something terrific is going to happen at least. Um, but why like, why is that a worthy aspiration? I don't know. I just have a nostalgia for the era of the eraser heads, where you know, like kid on the street was listening to the same thing as the kid in Ateneo, right? I mean, that's that the kind of cross cross class appeal of ultra electromagnetic pop where. They played and everybody listened. Uh, it kind of appeals to my democratic sensibilities, but you know, I'm kind of like yeah. And yes, it's, it, it it hasn't happened since the Beatles, right? I mean, mm. if you if you if you think about it, mm. it hasn't happened yeah. since the Beatles, you know. Generational anthems. You know, you know, Leonard, when you talk about that, then you're what you're saying is that you know it's going to be a very difficult, you know, and very difficult to arrive sort of magic mm. and lucky combination that will drive a real movement or revolution mm. across yeah. cult, across generations, across classes. Mm. Yeah, because of but the I balkanization of the internet. Yeah, but yes. you, you don't know where that's, you don't know where that's taking you either. Um, yeah, but also it's because, I don't know if you notice this with your students, Leloy, because obviously you're in a very different situation, but it's also because America's cultural power is in decline. So when I talk to my um, Australian students, for example, these are 18, 17-year-old kids. And this is the generation that just assumed that America is on the decline. Mm. So when you ask them where they want to travel, and obviously Australians are very known for, you know, traveling overseas, be backpackers for two years, America is no longer their top destination. They're not looking to America for uh, validation about their cultural uh, credentials, right? So maybe this is also something that maps on the Philippine culture, that we're looking for cultural inspirations uh, beyond America. So I don't know what it's like in the Philippines, though. It feels like that process of recognizing America's cultural decline might be more difficult to grapple with in the Philippines because of the, I think, still, Certainly. I mean, I mean, the centrality of American culture is still very evident in the Philippines. Now, having Certainly. said that, you know, it's easy to say these things, but I, I suspect that even that most Australian kids, they're probably still consuming the majority of their media from the United States, right? Most of their shows, right? So certain aspects of mm. America are in decline, but I think like certain other aspects of America are ascendant, right? I think T American TV is more ascendant now than it's ever been, right? Maybe American pop music mm. is no longer as ascendant because you have this competition from Korea, but I don't think like, Korean novellas are ever going to be able to compete with like HBO, right? Oh, Netflix, I right? I think, sure. I think like in terms of TV, like no, America is, the, uh, the, uh, the hegemony of America is, is here to stay. Sure. But I want to also say that American media right now might not even identify itself or be identified as American. It simply is like Disney. Right. Know? Yeah. Or it's an HBO yeah. movie. 
or it's a Netflix movie. Yeah, right. I mean, we're, we're in the world of late stage capitalism where you know, obviously, you know, uh, corporations are larger than nations. And, mm, you yeah. know, uh, platforms are certainly larger. Yeah, Facebook is Facebook. It's not America. No, interesting that, Lelo, you, you're very, you wax nostalgic a lot. And, and I, I love it because it's like, no, no, really. <laughs> politics, oh. music. Uh-huh. No, and that's uh, that's very romantic. And and what I want to just, I want to thank you guys, first of all, for, for joining us. But I really want what, to, what really struck me is that there's so many romantic notions going around. And for academics who are, you know, relied upon to be cold, certainly rely on you to tell the future, you know, and tell the present very well. I would like to get a lot of hope from the fact that you talk about a sort of hopeful uncertainty. You've also talked about this sort of romantic idea of home, a very warm idea of home. And weirdly enough, it forms the heart of the conversation, you know? And I want to sort of end with this sort of idea of the vector, you know, especially in this time of COVID, you know, because the virus itself is transmitted through vectors. And it's the number one unpredictable thing that happened to us, you know, in the past years. So when you talk about these things, I'd like to think that maybe there are other things to look forward to, especially for our nation, you know, for our generations, for the generations ahead of us, no? whether we choose to have children or not. Uh, I want to thank you guys and for your time, especially Leloy uh, and Nicole. Thanks for staying up, Sarge. No, of course. Thanks, Sarge. Of course. And I, I want to thank you for your late night voices. Very nice voices. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you also for your late night mic. So... Thank you and good night, guys. The Lonely Hearts Podcast is brought to you by Esquire Philippines in partnership with Podcast Network Asia. For more info on their shows in the network, visit podcastnetwork.asia. Also powered by Podmetrics, the only analytics you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up now for free at podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.